it wretched. Wow, very Good job. Thank Hi, you. Friends. Hi, friends. Welcome to Spooky Town Midwretched. Yes, every day is Spooky Town here, but it is the Halloween season, and we live for it over here. And this month, it is Spooky Town, Iowa, all month. Apparently, Iowa is a very <laughs> scary place. <laughs> we didn't realize this when we planned it, but... No, which I love that we both have back-to-back Iowa cases that we did not, like plan for it all no. i actually like need to go to iowa soon because we have relatives there that um have been trying to get us to come out and stay with them and we just haven't made had the ability to like make the time with our crazy schedules but i feel like a trip to iowa is kind of in my future Ooh, and do you spooky yeah. things there i would like to although i think like where we would be going is actually quite far away from where we're going today but depending mm-hmm. on where your case takes place maybe it wouldn't be oh, okay so we'll see we'll, we'll see. see i'm always up for a spooky trip i know nothing about the geography of iowa so it's a square in the middle of the united states of america it's like a square with like with a nose it's like yeah. a square with a nose yeah it's very it's very charming i think so should i do some scene setting then if yeah. we're asking questions about iowa okay. yeah let's scene set All right, so let's just get right to it, friends. Today we're talking about the Villisca Axe Murders of Villisca, Iowa. So um, I'm sure that many people will be familiar with this case if you have been otherwise a true crime fan. This tends to be uh, a favorite to talk about. (laughs) Uh, It has many strange idiosyncrasies to it that make it really haunting and bizarre, uh, especially the further and further away we get um, in time away from it. So uh, this case happened in 1912. It's currently obviously 2022. So we're talking 110 years <laughs> of separation between us and this case. And so the further along we get, the more like, I think kind of mythos and folklore tends to fill in some of these blanks, right? Yeah. So uh, before I get started, though, I do want to issue a content warning that even though this is an old time case, and I think that sometimes we have a little bit less um, sensitivity towards old time cases, this is a kid case and there are some details that are hard to hear. So uh, I would just be gentle with yourself when it comes to the details surrounding the children, which I will give little warnings of uh, as we proceed. All right. All right. So the town of Villisca, Iowa is, uh, so right, Iowa is like a square with a nose, and (laughs) Villisca is uh, nestled in its southwest corner. Um, It's a little bit um, more than halfway between Des Moines, Iowa, and Omaha, Nebraska, a little bit closer to Omaha. Uh, Villisca, at the time of the case that we're going to be talking about in 1912, had a population of about 2,500. Its current population sits closer to about 1,300. So in a lot of small town cases, I feel like we often see populations kind of settle out. They don't necessarily decrease that much. But this was one where um, I would argue that this case also kind of decimated this town in a lot of ways and really stunted its growth. In 1912, Villisca was a a pretty happening place, actually. Like I said, it had about 2,500 people, which... You know, it's not a huge city, but at the time it had, you know, many of the trappings of what would then be modern life. 
it had a movie house. You could go and like get your pictures taken, which was kind of like pay to get your pictures taken. It was kind of rare. There were theaters and, and culture and lots of churches and growth and shopping. There's a, a, a lot to do in Villisca. And at the time, also, like many, many places in the Midwest, it was becoming a hub for the railroad. Mm. So between that and also uh, in 1912, uh, they also built uh, a full armory. And that meant that they were able to house uh, potentially, and they, they would in the ensuing years, be kind of an outpost for, um, for troops during oh, you know, okay. domestic wars. Yeah. Okay. I forget that we had those. I know, right? <laughs> Land wars. What? what? <laughs> yeah. So Villisca was like building itself to be quite a hub between the shopping and the armory um, and those types of things. It is also very picturesque, beautiful historic homes, tree-lined streets. What really like stunned me about Villisca was how beautiful the churches were for a small town. Like... I feel like like a lot of times you see these like magnificent churches like in big cities like mm-hmm. you know kind of more you think of like historic hubs in like a big midwestern city like Chicago mm-hmm. or Detroit or Cleveland that have these amazing big churches but Villisca has these like gorgeous churches. Dude, that that era it was beautiful too. Oh, oh my gosh, everything was beautiful back in those days. Like we truly cared about architecture, and I'm sad. <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, and what's actually really interesting, too, is that uh, because of Villisca's downfall, a lot of the original historic buildings, not the Axe Murder House, but a lot of the other like prominent historic homes have since been torn down because mm-hmm. they fall into disrepair. People can't afford to live in them. People move out. You know, abandoned homes become condemned homes, et cetera. So, yeah. you know, Villisca could have been, it really could have been like some hot shit in Iowa. This case just kind of, I can't even say it froze it in time because it, it really, I think in many ways hurt it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like Google street viewing it. It looks so much like your town. Oh my <laughs> so gosh. many of these towns do. So many of these towns do. And when I geek out about the Velisca house and how much it looks like my house. <laughs> um, yeah. It's really, it's actually quite strange. Like I've been thinking about it a lot <laughs> this like, week. Just... The way that the neighborhoods are set up and the roads and I'm like, oh my gosh. Yeah, there was really a boilerplate for these, like, small Midwestern towns, mm-hmm. at, you know, at these eras. It's like there's a little template for them. There really was. I think there really was. The other thing I wanted to kind of put out there about Villisca, too, it's also become, because the Axe Murder House has become kind of a landmark in the town, mm-hmm. that has become, you know, a part of the industry of the town in some ways. Yeah. Which, from what I can see from my research and looking into it, is not necessarily looked upon favorably by the people that actually live there full time. Yeah, nobody wants their town associated with something gruesome when when you believe your town to have a lot of other things to offer. I know? think that's true in a lot of towns. Like it's true of Plainfield in Wisconsin. Like they don't love yeah. their attachment to Ed Gein, and I don't blame people, honestly. Mm-mm. I wouldn't either. Yeah. So let's let's talk about the Villisca axe murders. This is the case. Uh, my other favorite interesting fact about this is that this case was the news item that took the Titanic off of front pages across the country. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So t- Titanic had still been like front page news in most major news outlets 
from April until early summer, which is when this case happened. And when this, uh, when these murders happened, it took t- Titanic right off the front page of these papers. All right. So let's talk about June 9th, 1912. On the evening of June 9th of 1912, the Moore family spent their evening at a church service. It was a children's church service at the local Presbyterian church. Uh, Mrs. Moore was actually kind of like a children's minister, you know, or like in, in charge of or involved in like the kids ministry at the Presbyterian church in town. Uh, so Sarah Moore, the matriarch of the family that we're going to be talking about today, had been heavily involved in this church service. And the church service had taken, it was quite a long service. So it got out in the evening. Uh, and so she was there with her four children, Herman, Catherine, Boyd, and Paul. At this time, Herman was 11, Catherine was 10, Boyd was 7, and Paul was 5. Uh, so obviously her children had taken part in the, in the evening service. And along the way, they also kind of met up with their friends, Lena and Ina Stillinger, who were two sisters. Lena was 12, and Ina was 10, I believe. And so you know, the church service ended pretty late. So the Stillinger family was like, hey, it's cool if my kids sleep over at your house (laughs) because it's late. So the Stillinger children went home with Josiah and Sarah Moore and their four children to their home in Villisca, Iowa. And so the exact times of when they got home is is not totally known, but it probably would have been about 9.45, 10 o'clock. The program ended at 9.30. And they would have walked home from the church. So probably would have taken 15 minutes to a half an hour, just depending on when you're walking with children, like God knows, right? Oh, God, yeah. Um, How long things take. So how old were the kids? So there were four more children and the two Stillinger girls. So the more children were 11, 10, 7, and 5. Okay. Good ages for dawdling. Yes, exactly. And the Stillinger sisters were 12 and I believe 10. Okay. Um, yeah. So, you know, they were all friends and they were all, um, you know, just kind of bopping around and they went home to the, the Moore house. The house is a lovely petite Queen Anne. <laughs> <laughs> she says proudly. Yes. And the layout of this home is en- going to end up really important. So I'm not just being a geek about it. The home was modest, but lovely. And it was, it was tight quarters for the family, especially with two guests, but they made it work. So we don't know what happened when the Moors and the Stillinger girls got back home. What we do know is that in the morning of June 10th, Mary Peckham, who was the next door neighbor of the Moors, uh, woke up in the morning at about five. She kind of you know, peeked outside, hangs her laundry, hanging out in her yard. It's kind of like a little curious that there's no action yet at the Moore house, but not quite, you know, worried at that point. Uh, at about seven, while she's still kind of bumping around doing her chores, she noticed that the Moors had still not been outside to start their chores for the day. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's 1912. Your laundry hangs outside. So a lot of your cooking probably takes place outside in summer kitchens. Mm -hmm. And they had animals on the property as well. So this is what made, and it was especially the chickens that made Mary Peckham kind of raise an eyebrow. So 
uh, she went over to the house, and the first thing she did was that she let out the chickens because the chickens need to be let out. Yeah. <laughs> and then she knocked on the door. What she noticed when she walked up was that the house seemed eerily still and particularly dark. So she knocked on the door, and nobody answered. She started to jiggle the, the doorknob and found it to be locked. Some people will say that this was extremely unusual for the time, that, um, you know, it's that classic, like, no one locks their doors around here <laughs> kind of mentality. Yeah. Um, and there is, as any old-timey case will tell us, the sources of evidence are obviously sometimes a little bit muddied. So there are some sources that will say that it was kind of incidental that the doors were locked. Others will say that the killer had actually locked up and taken the keys. <laughs> so we don't know which one is, is definitively true. After Mrs. Peckham didn't get an answer to her knocking on the door, she ran over to make a phone call. There was rudimentary telephones in town mm-hmm. to call Mr. Moore's brother, Ross. Ross Moore was a pharmacist. Back in the day, he would have been called a druggist, but he's a pharmacist. I think we should go back to druggist, but... Right, I like it too. Uh, And he lived in town as well. So, uh, and again, like, there were 2,500 people, but some of the more prominent citizens all knew each other, especially the neighbors, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So she knew who to call. She called Ross. When Ross arrived, he first tried to just look into the windows. And he was kind of banging on the doors and shouting, just trying to get anybody's attention. The windows were all locked. From the outside, or the windows were all dark, I should say. From the outside, you couldn't really see why. We'll find out later uh, why it was. But from the outside, um, it was like, why aren't there any lamps on? Like, what is going on? He's just banging on the door. Mm -hmm. Mrs. Peckham was there. She kind of hung back. Ross Moore went into the room, into the house. Uh, Eventually, he was able to to, um, actually use one of his own keys to, like, pry the door open. (laughs) So, oh, so not like an actual house key. He kind of no. I think he just kind of like ramrod it in there and hoped for the best, and it actually ended up working. Team so ramrod. team ramrod. <laughs> I will say. Um, so this is where I'm going to talk a little bit about the layout of the home. And my house is extremely similar. They are pretty much twin layouts. Actually, mine is just bigger. When we moved into the house, it still had the original door, like the original front door. Yeah. And I will say that you probably could have put about anything in that lock and it would have just swung right open. Yeah. So it does not surprise me that he was able to just get right in there. Sounds like anybody that hadn't done that before was just doing it out of politeness. Yeah, exactly. So when you walk into the the Moore home, you would walk straight into the kitchen. Mm -hmm. While you're in the kitchen looking around, you're going to see to one direction a parlor. Uh, or a sitting room. And then you'll see a narrow staircase that takes you upstairs where the other bedrooms of the house are. Mm-hmm. When Ross Moore entered the parlor, he saw a horrific, horrific sight. The parlor is where the family had set up the two Stillinger girls to sleep for the evening. And I have to correct myself. Ina was actually eight. I don't know why I thought she was 10. I just see it in my notes now. Okay. So he walked in. He saw their two small bodies surrounded in blood with dark stains just all over the bed and their their bodies and the floor and a tremendous amount of blood he emerged from the house in a complete panic and just told mrs peckham don't go in there something horrible has happened here the two bodies were unrecognizable it would have been clear that they were children Mm -hmm. but it would not have been clear who they were by any means 
I'll talk about why that was. Uh, the first person to arrive on the scene after Ross Moore and Mrs. Peckham was City Marshal Hank Horton. He was the one who discovered the rest of the victims. Every person in the house had been horrifically murdered. Um, upstairs, Horton found Josiah Moore, Sarah Moore, Herman, Catherine, Boyd, and Paul all dead in their beds in the same condition of having their heads bashed in by some kind of blunt object, and we'll talk about what that was as well. So after the full breadth of the discovery had been made, um, news traveled very quickly in town. Several uh, police officers and the coroner came to the house right away. Uh, Also a village doctor came to the house, as did a whole bunch of looky-loos wanting to know what went on. So uh, there were lots of like uh, firsthand accounts where people just remembered the moment of somebody saying, hey, oh, my God, did you hear what happened at the Moore house? Did you hear what happened at the Moors? And then people were just like showing up and surrounding the house. We see this so much with these old timey cases. We saw yeah. it with Gunnis. We saw it with, um, oh, gosh, what was that case you did in Detroit? The St. Alban Street. Oh, massacre. yeah. St. Alban. Yeah. Yeah. Where um, the crowds drawn were absolutely wild people are just walking um, through the houses like mm-hmm. just looky lewin yeah they really did and because there were so many people law enforcement like quickly like basically lost control of the situation they didn't even try to tell people not to go in there <laughs> because it's like it's at first it's just like the local authorities right yeah yeah uh, and they're just like uh this is kind of our first major murder we don't really know what to do so i guess you can go look around and it's 1912. Yeah, exactly. At about noon, the Villisca National Guard arrived and they got the situation back in hand. And it's because of that, getting it back in hand, uh, that we were able to kind of see the, the true, the first facts of the case. So, and, and these are the facts. So the first thing that we, we know is that these murders were committed by the blunt end of an axe. We know this because the axe was left at the scene. Oh, Interesting. Yeah, it was. So uh, a lot of times I feel like when we hear about axe murders, which were kind of endemic in this particular era, I feel like they end up kind of having like this little, I don't know, mythology of their own to them. Mm -hmm. Right? It's like a whole genre. It is a whole genre. Now, I feel like when we think of axe murders, we think about Lizzie Borden, like just Mm -hmm. whacking somebody with with the blade. Uh, The reality of actually many axe murders that took place. Mm -hmm. In this time period, was actually it was used as a bludgeoning tool, so it was yeah. on the other end of the axe. Yeah. So you know, it's not stab, stab, stab. It's bludgeon, bludgeon, bludgeon with the other end of the axe. Yeah, axes weren't really sharp enough to really cut. You weren't going to do that much damage with it. You you could have done a lot more damage with the with the other end. They yes. ain't sharp, but they're heavy. Exactly. So uh, let me go back to what we found at the case. Okay. So. The murder weapon had been left behind, and it was an axe. Um, all eight people in the home had been bludgeoned with the blunt end of the axe. You know, like I said before, like, we imagine axe murders as being this gruesome, like, and it is extremely gruesome. Yeah. We, we imagine, I think, the mythology is like the axe-wielding madman bringing the blade down mm-hmm. upon people. That actually was not what happened. It was the blunt end of the axe that was used to actually bludgeon people. So... Uh, these were not necessarily stabbings, they were bludgeonings. The other thing that became obvious 
pretty quickly was that all but one person had been asleep at the time of their murders. Weird. Yes, I'm very confused about how um, they would have stayed asleep. Especially, well, everyone was sleeping in the same room as somebody else. Nobody was sleeping in a room alone. Oh, that's weird. Yeah, so the Stillinger girls were both downstairs in the parlor, and then all the kids shared a room upstairs, and then Josiah and Sarah were in their room. So Mm -hmm. nobody was sleeping alone in the house. And yet there's only evidence of one person waking up. I do feel like when we say evidence in 1912, yeah. I take that very much with a grain of salt. Well, yeah. How would you? Uh, mm. Yeah, I'll talk about how they they felt that they knew, but yeah, how did they feel? That they knew? What were their interpretations of? <laughs> what were the they interpreting facts? to say yes. that? Yes. Anyway. Yeah. So uh, let me talk about kind of the state of the victims first, uh, and that might help us kind of figure out why they thought the way that they thought. So. The doctors on the scene estimated the time of death to be somewhere around the midnight hour or a little bit afterwards. We know the family probably got home at about 10 o'clock, so there is a two-hour window there, according to those doctors' reports. Those doctors would have been basically looking at the onset of rigor mortis uh, and Mm -hmm. to some degree lividity to make that decision. But back in those days, the science of that was significantly less precise than it is now. And even now, there's not exactly a precision science either. Yeah. But, you know, it's a best guess that somewhere between midnight and the wee hours of the morning that these murders took place. All of the victim's faces were covered after they were killed. Nobody's face, and this is a bit of a content warning, nobody's face was recognizable. And this is where, when we really have to think about the the full extent of the brutality of this case is such that nobody's face was recognizable. Grandmother of the children, Josiah Moore's mother, was not able to see her son's body or her grandchildren's bodies because all the authorities in charge were basically like, you don't want to. Uh, So we're kind of not really going to let you. Uh, There was a moment where they actually kind of arranged it so that they got Josiah's hand of hang out of his casket so that his mom could hold it one last time oh my god that's so sad yeah but they were absolutely unrecognizable their skulls were completely bashed in uh, particularly the children not because of any extra brutality but because they were also young and their bones not quite fully formed especially the little ones mm-hmm. pretty i would say you pretty much didn't really have a head anymore yikes yeah at the end of the day, the axe was found in the room occupied by the Stillinger girls in that parlor mm-hmm. downstairs. Uh, there had been an attempt made to wipe it off. So the presumption is that the killer came in, killed the Stillinger girls first, went upstairs, and then came back downstairs and deposited the axe and a couple of other strange things. Like I said, all of the faces and heads of the victims were covered in some way, Uh, with some kind of clothing, whether that be a jacket or a pillowcase or whatever. You get the sense it was kind of like whatever was nearby Mm -hmm. was just used to cover the faces. Windows were also covered, as well as all the mirrors in the home. Okay, interesting. Don't worry. Don't worry. The only victim that showed any evidence of having woken up was Lena Stillinger, who, uh, if you remember, was 12 years old content warning Mm -hmm. again for um, potential child sex abuse. 
So Lena Stillinger was found with her, like her tights down, basically, and her nightgown pulled up. Uh, and she was not wearing any underwear. There was also a blood stain on the inner side, inner, um, like inside of her knee uh, mm-hmm. on the right side, which the doctors presumed to think was like a wipe mark. Like she had kind of like mm-hmm. put up a, a defensive gesture and then wiped the blood um, kind of inadvertently on her own inner thigh or inner knee. Yeah. She also was the only victim to have anything that the doctors there would consider a defensive wound on her arm. Okay. There was no evidence at the time that any of the victims were actually physically, sexually assaulted or abused. Okay. There was no evidence of rape, as in uh, no semen left behind. The coroners did exams of all of the girls and women in the home and found that, and this is graphic, um, all the young Mm -hmm. girls were still, uh, had hymens intact. So at that time, this would have been considered kind of the gold standard for whether or not um, a penetrative assault had occurred. Yeah. Yeah. We know in our modern consciousness that there are lots of other ways to sexually assault somebody. Yeah. And even more ways for it to be sexually motivated, even if hands were not actually laid on her in that fashion. Yeah. So what what I think and what some of the other kind of uh, researchers and thinkers on this that I've seen uh, have postulated was that it was visual stimuli that he had done that for um, and kind of staged her in that fashion. Hers was the only body staged also, as in the only one where, like, the clothes were obviously, like, intentionally not where they had been to start with. Okay. Yeah. Huh. So this would kind of get people's gears turning at the idea that maybe this was a sexually motivated crime in some way. But, yeah, yeah well, you have the same kind of shrug that I do and a lot of other people probably did. What's that shrug about? It, it could have been sexually motivated. It also could have just been an opportunity. I don't know. When you're a criminal and that's your mind is in criminality, it's like, hey, here's an opportunity. It could be a distraction, although I don't think criminals were quite that sophisticated at that time. But I don't know. I don't think it's evidence that, that was it was sexually motivated. No, I don't believe it to be either. I I think that it was uh, sexually opportunistic, and I certainly yeah. believe that it was a visual stimulation. Mm-hmm. I I think that criminals were probably just as sophisticated as they are now, but had lot less resources at their hands. Um, yeah, but I don't think it was a decoy. I think it was an opportunistic thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did kind of arise as a more realistic kind of motivating factor or target I should say was that Josiah Moore was particularly brutally beaten and when you say that one person was more particularly beaten at the scene of a bludgeoning uh, of eight people that means some pretty serious shit so Mm -hmm. uh, there are two kind of pieces of evidence to, to suggest this one of them is extremely gruesome it is that the force that Josiah Moore had been beaten with was enough to liquefy his eyeballs. Um, oh my god. And such that there was not brain matter left in his skull. Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah. That's overkill. Jesus. It was. There's also evidence to suggest that uh, this was the only room that the killer had visited twice. Why this was thought was that um, 
So at the scene, Mrs. Moore's shoes were underneath Josiah's side of the bed, probably just kind of kicked off. Mm-hmm. And so the shoe was found on its side, but it had blood inside and under it. So okay. the coroner, uh, and I should give his name. His name is Dr. Lindquist, and he did a very um, thorough job on this case. So uh, Dr. Lindquist thought that perhaps the shoe had been at one point upright and then blood had run into it. And then that the killer returned to the bedside to um, to hit Josiah Moore again and knocked mm-hmm. over the shoe and then blood would have poured on top of it. So it was blood inside and on top of the shoe that suggested mm-hmm. that it didn't just like kind of happen in there. That it was pooled, poured out. Uh, and then pulled on top of. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm just picturing it, yeah. Yeah. So you'll hear often the other kind of strange things found in the home that that really make you raise an eyebrow. The first thing that was uh, found was at least one cigarette butt in the attic, Mm -hmm. which suggests that somebody was there for enough of a month of time, like, you know, laying in wait basically for this family to come home. Mm-hmm. Nobody in the family was known to be a smoker, so it is almost certain that this belonged to the killer. Okay. And that he had been there hiding out. Um, there was also a wash basin found in the kitchen with bloody water on the inside, which suggested that the killer had uh, taken the time to try to clean off. There was also a fixed dinner, so a, a full plate of uneaten food. Okay. Yeah. Presumably that the killer had kind of assembled, perhaps after committing the murders, and maybe just didn't have the stomach to actually eat it. Huh. Yeah. Um, that, I don't know. I don't know, man. If you have the stomach to assemble a meal, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, there's no, no, we don't know why that plate was there. It also could have been somebody's midnight snack that they put together, you know. Or whatever, but we know that there was one plate of an uneaten meal put together. There was a piece of a keychain found on the floor in the downstairs area, and no one knows where that keychain came from. Um, So that was notable, that that had probably come from outside of the home, to anyone else's knowledge. There was also, and this is uh, very, very strange, so... There were two giant slabs of bacon found in the home. (laughs) So one slab of bacon was at home where it should have been in the icebox. And when Mm -hmm. I say slab, I'm talking like between two and four pounds. There are differing reports about how big the bacon was, but uh, it was no less than two pounds of bacon as large as four pounds of bacon. So like back in the day, bacon would have been like, or like now before it's like sliced, but you never see it this way unless you make bacon. Um, yeah but bacon is like on a slab and then sliced off for your pleasure so (laughs) so uh these bacons were uh intact slabs of bacon the second slab of bacon was found on the floor downstairs near the axe some reports would say that it seemed like it was used to uh, like it was laying against the door others said it was actually on the floor dr lindquist that that lead coroner Stated mm-hmm. that it was on the floor near the axe. I'm apt to kind of go with his account rather yeah. than like some looky loo who's like, oh, it was against the door or whatever. It could have just been like on the floor by the door. Yeah. Like, 
They're not using the bacon to keep the door shut. No. But the weird thing was that the bacon was there. There was no reason for the bacon to be in the living room. Like, no logical reason for an entire slab of bacon to be in the living room, just sitting there, like, hanging out. It's living room bacon. Do you not have living room bacon? <laughs> I mean, I would like living room bacon, but I don't have living room bacon. I, I have thought a lot about the bacon, though. Uh, and it was also... <laughs> It was wrapped in um, either like a bed sheet or a cheesecloth. Um, depends on who you okay. talk to. But it was I'm going to believe cheesecloth. It's more logical, right? <laughs> so that bacon was wrapped, which makes me think, I think homie was just trying to steal some bacon. And then he decided it was too much trouble to deal with. I have a thought. I'm going to save it to the end, though. Well, my other thought, um, and maybe it spoils your thought, I also thought of it as maybe like a practice object. Although, like, nobody reported about the condition of the bacon, particularly just that it was there. But I wondered about, yeah. like, test swings. That was the first thing that came to my mind was, like, test swings. How hard do I have to hit the bacon to get some damage on it? Someone could think of that as predictive for how hard you would have to hit a person. I, I, I Yeah, I can see that. But I feel like if it had been bludgeoned bacon, like, somebody that would be in the notes somewhere. Yeah, you'd think. I think Dr. Lindquist wouldn't have let that go. Yeah, he seems like he's on top of stuff. You know what this reminds me so hard of? Mm-hmm. Hinterkaifeck. I know. It, it very much recalls Hinterkaifeck. Yeah. Which people should it's also like a... look into. There's a really good stuff you should know episode about Hinterkaifeck. And, you know, as with Hinterkaifeck, there are these odd details, right? Uh-huh. The other detail that uh, comes up over and over and over again is how many things in the home were covered. Yeah. Windows were all covered with curtains where they were available. Where they were not available, the killer just hung up clothing, bed sheets, jackets, um, whatever they could find. Mirrors were also covered. And when people talk about this case, everyone's always like oh the mirrors were covered that's so weird it sounds like satanic and culty and whatever and i'm like isn't that a jewish custom for uh after deaths yeah yeah mourning periods yeah yeah i'm sure it's probably not just jewish but that's like the big one that i think it's not but that's what i came to mind too um is that in jewish customs after Mm -hmm. somebody dies uh you sit shiva it's a, a mourning period that takes place for a week And uh, sitting shiva usually involves covering any reflective surface. It basically kind of historic, like way, way back in the day, historically, folklorically, it may have been (laughs) seen as a way to make sure the dead stay at rest, essentially. More contemporary tradition basically just says we should be able to demonstrate that this house is at a standstill right now and covering anything reflective is is what demonstrates that we're in a state of stillness we're in a state of mourning doesn't have something to do with vanity as well it probably does yeah yeah there's also uh some degree of tradition of mirror covering among irish catholics as well okay so uh there are customs of doing this in a lot of different faith sets there was even a time potentially that People kind of did it in the Victorian era, kind of for show, essentially. <laughs> um, oh, yes. The Victorian era at the time, I think of a lot of modesty. And... Right. Yeah. Everything for show. <laughs> so so to me, when we say the the mirrors and the everything was covered, 
it's not strange to me in the sense of something like funky or um, spooky happening to me what that what more interestingly that says to me is something cultural about the killer yeah yeah it definitely communicates something when you said the Irish Catholics I'm like yeah that makes sense Mm -hmm. when shit gets tough they get witchy exactly exactly which I need that on a (laughs) t-shirt but yeah I mean I think that that was in large part that was it so to me like when I saw that and then I looked into I was like I doubt there was like a prominent Jewish population in rural Iowa in the 1910s I could be wrong would there have been a pretty good number of Irish Catholics I would imagine so or enough people with a Catholic ideology potentially for that to be culturally significant. Mm-hmm. So to me, I just thought that tells us something about our killer, doesn't it? I believe so. Yeah. And probably not satanic. No, 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 I don't think so. Um, that's not my sense at all. Not that I'm the expert. The expert is. <laughs> I love this. Oh man. This guy is the best. So good segue into giving credit where credit is due to this awesome guy. So Dr. Edgar Epperly has devoted his entire academic career to the study of the Velisca Axe murders. This is the kind of career I need to have. I know. Where have we gone wrong? So Dr. Epperly has been studying the Velisca Axe murders for um, like 50 years, um, a very long time. And he's a professor, a retired professor, I should say. I watched a very lovely episode of CSI Iowa. It was like a local news show where they brought him on to talk about Velisca. It's on YouTube. I recommend it. He also has a a very detailed and interesting book called Fiend Incarnate that he wrote that kind of puts together the entire case and all of the little kind of webs of things that surround it. So for more detail, I recommend uh, his book, which again is called Fiend Incarnate. I'm looking up CSI Iowa. It has two stars on IMDb, but I don't believe that. Yeah. (laughs) It was a five-star experience. So um, that's kind of, that's the details inside of the home. The unfortunate thing is like, you remember all those looky-loos that showed up? Yep. They were all throughout the house. There was one person who was said to have even taken chunks of skull from the home. Uh, You know... I, I think of this every time because people give a lot of shit about like, you know, true crime having a moment and like people obsessed with true crime nowadays. It has always been true. If anything, I think that we've like acculturated a little bit to it. I agree. I totally agree. So the crazy thing too, I think is that, you know, back, back in the way back, people had a much closer relationship with death than they do now, right? Like funerals mm-hmm. were in the home. People dressed their own dead, prepared them for their own funerals. People were just dying a lot more and a lot younger and in a lot, you know, different circumstances. Farming towns, people die in these, like, strange farming accidents. People mm-hmm. had this much more immediate relationship with death than we do now, where death now very much exists, like, behind closed doors, right? It's very yeah. sanitized. So it's interesting to me, too, that, like, it's reported that, like, over 100 people that were not investigators had their feet in that house in a town of 2,500 people. That's a pretty good fraction of the town that was like, yes, I would love to see eight bludgeoned bodies, including six children. Wow. Tell me true crime is having a moment right now. 
Mm-hmm. Right? Tell me this is a new phenomenon that we, our culture is just now getting morbid. Because guess what? I probably would have been one of those people there. Sorry. I, I'm not proud of it. I don't, I think I would have been outside, but I don't think I would have gone in. Like I even, like I have a hard time thinking about these cases in the context of like, ooh, it's our spooky episode. Because to me, I'm like, this shit is upsetting, right? Like, it, it doesn't stop being upsetting because it's 1912. I, I have a relationship with as far as, like, this is how this person died and that is the tragedy. Mm-hmm. But the idea of death does not... Yeah, we've had this conversation any... Yeah. yeah. Does not bring about any emotions. No. Meanwhile, I remember having to borrow your Alpha Stim machine because of my nightly panic attacks about dying. So, yeah, yeah that's fun times. Fun times. Yeah. Yeah. So we're very different on that. <laughs> so. Anyway. Yeah. So, like, look, the other thing that's happening that's super fucking tragic is that, you know, there's these investigators are, they're swarming the house and these looky loos are swarming the house. The Stillinger parents, it took a while for them to find out what happened. Oh, fuck. Because everything is word of mouth, right? Uh-huh. And for whatever reason, the word of mouth did not get to them right away. Well, I imagine nobody wants to be the one to tell them. No. And I think there's also kind of a sensationalism about it. Like, all people were saying was, ooh, something happened at the moors, something happened at the moors. And the Stillingers, they get through part of their morning and they're like, that's weird that the kids aren't home yet. And that's when they start to look into it. Just like, hey, we got to catch up with the kids. And this is how they found out what happened to their children. Oh, no. Yeah. Basically, just what they thought was just asking, you know, some follow-up about, like, oh, we got to get to the Moore house and, and pick up our kids or whatever. And then uh, people are like, oh, shit, your kids were at the Moore house? Do you know what happened at the Moore house? And then they arrive at the home and they and they realize what has happened. Mm-hmm. Which is the other terrible thing about 1912. So, obviously, investigation, and we say that with, like, you know, loving air quotes. We appreciate what people were trying to do in 1912. We recognize that it is not what we would do now, right? So investigation is is swiftly underway. One Mm -hmm. thing that happens kind of right away is they actually brought out dogs. And the dogs were, they start off at the, the home. And they were asked to obviously follow the trail. The trail the dogs followed was this. They started off in the living room of the home. They went upstairs. They went back downstairs. They came outside and they pop, 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 dogging along. And they stopped in front of the home of F.F. Jones. F.F. Jones was Josiah Moore's boss. So Josiah Moore worked at the store owned by F.F. Jones. And this would quickly bring Jones under suspicion in connection with the murder. F.F. Jones had uh, an alibi for that morning or that evening. um, And he himself, as a suspect, did not end up going very far. The idea that F.F. Jones may have hired somebody to do the killing became a pretty prominent theory. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. DNA was obviously not a thing at the time. Fingerprints were... So, and this was a fun fact that I thank Dr. Epperly for. So, the most local expert to look at the fingerprints at the time was this dude, M.W. McLaughrey. 
and he was in Kansas at the federal penitentiary where he worked. And they telegrammed him and they were like, hey, you're really good with fingerprints, right? We need you down in Villisca. Homie shows up drunk as fuck. So <laughs> he was the prominent fingerprint expert at the time. But mm-hmm. he was so wasted when he was in the house that he was falling down all over everything. Great. We love an expert. Mm-hmm. So between the fact that he was too drunk to actually pick up any fingerprints and the fact that there were over 100 other people at the home, uh, unfortunately, his trip was was wasted time. The The news headlines at this time were pretty amazing, actually. <laughs> they always are. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. Pretty, pretty delightful. You know, Velisca is wrapped up in fear. People learn more about it and they hear what happened and they... There continues to be, like, just this sense of, like, this is Velisca. How did this happen here, right? So what started to happen was that families would start to, like, um, double up and sleep uh, in the same home together, you know, to to try to feel safe. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to talk about suspects a little bit here because Velisca is living in fear. And that is unacceptable. So... have islands living in fear. We cannot. We cannot. So the first uh, suspect that comes into play that that a lot of people still think is is a really interesting point is uh, actually a preacher. So this preacher, his name is Preacher Kelly. He was known to the Moore family. He was the preacher at their church. He immediately hopped on a train the day after the killing. On the train, a witness would report that Kelly had said to them, there are a number of people dead in Villisca this morning. The, oh. This was before the discovery of the bodies had been. Yeah. Made. So that would make Mr. Kelly a very prominent suspect pretty much right away. When he came back to Villisca after a short trip out of town, I believe he just went to another town in Iowa for a little bit. Uh, when he came back, he did actually stage a confession. In this confession, he said that he had an internal monologue that told him to, quote, slay utterly. Oh, interesting. Yes. The problem with, with Preacher Kelly is that as his, um, as his twilight years came upon him, <laughs> um, it would become further and further apparent that he was extremely mentally ill. Got um, it. He was also very, very petite. He was five foot two, uh, if he was lucky. And one thing that we know also from the scene was that the upswing of the axe had been mm-hmm. high enough to, um, I'm upswinging, it had been high enough <laughs> to leave drag marks on the ceiling. So okay. for somebody to have been five foot two, to be able to wield the axe high enough to make marks on the ceiling, but still have enough leverage on it to swing back down is highly unlikely. Like, the ceilings in those houses, like, that style of house aren't especially high, but you'd still have to have, like, something. Yeah, I feel like... Some height on you. They're not high, but they're also not short. Like, if I think about my house, for example, because it's the same... It's the same freaking house. Uh, We have (laughs) nine-foot ceilings upstairs and eight-foot ceilings downstairs. So, like, if my husband were wielding an axe, say the axe is two feet long and my husband is six-three... He, his axe would hit the, you know, the, the ceiling of the room, right? Downstairs. Yeah, yeah. Mine would not. 
right? Mm-hmm. And I'm about the same height as Father Kelly or Preacher Kelly. So anecdotally, it doesn't quite parse. Uh, so even though he did make that confession, and I'm not going into the details of the confession, basically because it was mutterings and bullshit. It was not, mm-hmm. uh, it was not cogent. It was not detailed enough to actually communicate knowledge of the scene even. Was it kind of dementia? Yeah. That's, is that what he was? That's the thought. That's the thought. So we don't know for sure. We know that his older, his elderly years were very, very, very unpleasant. And he was okay. very ill. And he did, um, I believe he had out uh, many of his days in, as an inpatient. Um, okay. There was a coroner's inquest into him, but because of his size and because of his instability, uh, it was not particularly of any real interest. You know, it got the town buzzing. Of course. But it was not, it didn't really go anywhere. Mm-hmm. The other suspects were a lot more interesting. Mm-hmm. So, like I said before, uh, Josiah Moore worked at F.F. Um, F. Jones's store. Um, I'm not sure what his, his second F was. His first F was Frank. Um, Francis? So, well, Frank Francis. Franklin Francis? Franklin Francis? I don't know. But, uh, so... Frederick? Frederick? Probably, probably Frederick. That makes more sense. So Frank Jones was a very prominent person in Villisca. He actually ended up being a senator and, you know, was was very known in town. Um, and he was a very rich man. The theory was that, uh, like I said before, that Mr. Jones had hired somebody to kill Josiah Moore and his family because... Mr. Jones was annoyed or angry or inflamed, depending on how you look at it, that Josiah Moore was allegedly sleeping with his daughter-in-law. Okay. And because of this, that he and his son, Albert, um, would have conspired to have Josiah Moore killed. That's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. And it, it involves, like believing in the conspiracy and also that they would have been able to hire somebody and that that person would have also gotten away with it. Mm-hmm. It's a little far-fetched. Um, the, I think probably the more interesting theories um, were that this was the work of a serial killer. Who that serial killer is, we have some options. So, the first person to come up uh, as a person of interest is William Blackie Mansfield, or I guess the third person, because we already talked about F.F. Jones and uh, George <laughs> Kelly. So the first person in that serial killer like line of interest is Blackie Mansfield. Blackie Mansfield is originally from Illinois, and he uh, was particularly liked by a couple of lead investigators, especially the guys that came in from out of town to investigate. At this time in history, Kansas was kind of like the epicenter in the central Midwest of like major investigative bodies. So lots of agents from Kansas City came into Villisca to look into these killings. So Blackie Mansfield was a, a bad dude. He had a very hard time in life in general. He was addicted to cocaine even at that time. And he was also heavily implicated in another axe murder. 
These axe murders happened two years after Velisca, but they were committed in a much similar fashion. So he is accused of killing his own wife, infant child, father-in-law, and mother-in-law of a similar axe bludgeoning. Uh, And this occurred in Blue Island, Illinois. He's also suspected in the axe murders committed in Paola, Kansas, which occurred four days before Velisca. Um, And in that town, uh, it was two women killed, Jenny Peterson and Jenny Miller. Um, Wait, no, I'm wrong. Uh, There was another one. So Jenny Peterson and Jenny Miller uh, were also killed in Aurora, Colorado, and he was implicated in those deaths as well. All of these towns would have followed the same train line, which becomes a prominent part of our theories here. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. The thing that implicated Blackie Mansfield in these killings was that, according to the detectives out of Kansas City, uh, Detective James Newton Wilkerson especially, um, was that Blackie Mansfield was implicated in these other axe murders, and all of these axe murders were committed in the same fashion, which indicated a pattern to him. So each person was you know beaten with the blunt end of the axe and uh, in the cases that Blackie Mansfield was connected to um, all of the mirrors in the homes were covered huh Mm -hmm. Um, it was also known that Blackie Mansfield liked to in some way cover his own tracks whether that was wiping down surfaces in the homes that he was Mm -hmm. in or uh, wearing gloves that he was at least to some degree concerned with cleaning up after himself, which we found in the Velisca house as well with the, with the wash basin in the kitchen. So that was enough for uh, Detective Wilkerson to manage um, to get a grand jury to open an investigation into Mansfield. Um, and he was brought forth. The problem was, was that uh, there were payroll, payroll records that did show that, according to those records, that Mansfield was in Illinois during the time of the Velisca murders. And because of this, he was released. What did he do for work? Whatever he could. Okay. Basically, kind of a bumping around kind of guy. Um, at that time, it would have been like um, handiwork, essentially. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, Blackie Mansfield, though because of the nature of the work that he did, so I'm glad you asked that question, was it was like gig work, basically. Mm -hmm. Because it was gig work and maybe not the most reliable thing in the world. Yeah. Yeah. It still raises a question. That's why I was curious. I was like, is this like kind of a a clock-in, clock-out job where he has like a clock-in card? Or is it just like somebody wrote a check to him that day? My sense of what I was able to find was that it was more like... um, Oh, hey, you worked on Tuesday. I'm going to write down Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So not not clock in, clock out, to my knowledge, that I was able to figure out. It's also, you know, it's stunning to think about him being connected to not just another axe murder, but another axe murder involving uh, a similar profile of victim. So a grown man, women, and children. Mm-hmm. A whole family, uh, yeah. Another whole family. So it's... It's kind of not hard to connect him in that way as well, because we know he's got the stomach for it, mm-hmm. basically. Um, and in that case, there there were really not really other options as far as suspects uh, in in his family annihilation case. Mm-hmm. 
it was very much attributed to him pretty much right away. The problem was is that it happened in retrospect. So his family annihilation happened two years after Velisca. Yeah. But was Velisca kind of his warm up? Or had he been doing this all along and we're still kind of connecting the dots of what he was up to? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then he ended up just killing his family. And yeah. Yeah. Just to come back to for, poor uh, Reverend Kelly for just a second, I just want to make sure that we are aware that, like, of the timeline here. So uh, he was suspected kind of right away. People thought he was really kooky and very strange, right? Uh, and the comment on the train was very alarming to people. He was suspected also having a particular interest in Lena Stillinger. And that, too, kind of makes some people point um, suspicion towards him as well, because Lena was the one to have been found um, in a, a sexualized state as well. Was she the oldest one? She was the oldest girl, yeah. Okay, then that... Uh, I, I want to connect the dots too closely with that one then. Yeah. So... Uh, There was another um, major, major, major serial killer at work in this era that I think is a a very strong contender for the Velisca killer. So Mm -hmm. Henry Lee Moore was a known serial killer that kind of butted up against, in some ways, the Blackie Mansfield cases as well. And this is where I think people are going to start to raise the question of, like, how, how the F are there so many suspects in axe murders? Because I think we have, like, this mythology around axe murders. It's, like, this really kind of extreme Yeah. Obviously, the number of victims is very extreme. However, the weapon itself would not have been considered as such. No. To put it really bluntly, an axe would have been in everybody's home. It's a weapon of convenience. So if you're going to somebody's home with the intention of bludgeoning them, there's likely going to be an axe. Mm -hmm. Right? So even though now... If there were axe murders now, we would be like, what the hell? Because um, you know how most people don't have an axe in their house. Yeah, so you'd have to assume that somebody brought the axe with them, right? Mm-hmm. In these cases, no. Like, that's a weapon of opportunity. That's like you stumbled upon a house with the intent to do harm, and there was an axe. So that's what you used to do it. Yeah, yeah. It's as ubiquitous as a kitchen knife. Exactly, exactly. Especially at a time when guns were not great. Yeah. Not super accurate. They did have them in everybody. Probably most people would have them in their home, especially in Iowa. Yes. Yeah. They're not. And these are people that, um, you know, were chopping wood for for heat and cooking in their homes, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So there was there was good reason for pretty much everybody to have an axe. Mm-hmm. Um, so Henry Lee Moore, like I said, is a he's a very popular suspect uh, in this case as well. So he was um, kind of a, a ne'er-do-well from the start. He had a very hard time as a child for whatever reason. He was actually sent to a reformatory pretty early on in his life for forgery charges and other kind of small time like petty crimes as well. However, in September of of 1911, there were those murders in Colorado Springs that uh, Blackie Mansfield had also been accused of as two women. So... We have these kind of like two men like intersecting in the same places and axe murders tend to follow them where they go. So mm-hmm. he was known to have been in Colorado Springs at the time as well. 
and that he had been working for the railroad. So he would have been, had access to transportation. Mm-hmm. Um, nine months before the Velisca crimes, another family was bludgeoned to death in Colorado Springs. This is the Wayne family. A husband, wife, uh, and child, and then another woman and her two children bludgeoned uh, with an axe in their home in Colorado Springs. Mm-hmm. Um, a month later, in October, another family in Monmouth, Illinois, um, and then five members of another family in Kansas a couple of weeks later from that uh, were all killed in their beds by bludgeoning via axe. Henry Lee Moore was in all of those locations at those times. And the crimes were very similar insofar as the uh, everyone being asleep when they were killed, mm-hmm. the bludgeonings, the kind of seamlessness to which people entered and exited the home as well, that the homes themselves were not, other than the murders, were not in like a particular degree of disarray. Mm-hmm. So this is where our drunk fingerprinting expert comes back into play as well, because in his sober moments, he was able to use <laughs> fingerprints to connect um, Henry Moore with at least one of those cases. So Henry Moore is, I think, a pretty compelling suspect because of his connections via fingerprints to a couple of those ex-murders in Colorado Springs. Now, mm-hmm. the, the two Jennies, the two elderly women that were killed, it's a toss-up if that was Henry Moore or Blackie Mansfield. Um, yeah. Both were known to be in Colorado Springs or in the vicinity. Both were known to be axe murderers. But who did that particular crime? We don't know. It, it was likely one of the two of them. Hmm. But do we know which one? We do not. So those were kind of the prominent, prominent suspects. With any crime that has a great degree of publicity back in the day and now you do get confessors that just kind of come out of the woodwork and are like, I did it. I did it. And it's a notoriety thing, right? Yeah. yeah. So in 1931, actually George Myers, who was in prison in Detroit, Michigan, randomly confessed to the murders of the Moore family, which at that point would have been, it would have been 18 years on. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, he, for whatever reason, um, was awaiting sentence for burglary, confessed to this killing, and that he confessed to this killing after being interrogated uh, about other crimes, and that underneath that interrogation, he kind of folded and was like, I I did the Velisca murders. I mean, a coerced confession. I'm always skeptical about that stuff, too, because how much of it is just like, I'm just going to confess to random stuff so that you don't kill me. I'll buy another day. It becomes like a kind of a thousand and one nights kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. The only thing that makes this one a little bit interesting to me is the actual um, body of the confession that he did make. So what he said was this. I never knew what the man's name was. When he says the man, he's talking to a shadowy figure that approached him and gave him $2,000 to kill a family. Hmm. He pointed out the house of this family he wanted wiped out. I demanded part of my money from him before I did the job. He gave me 2000 and said he would give me the rest afterwards. I got an axe and entered the house about midnight. I killed them all, the man, his wife, their four children. They were all asleep. 
A little while after, I again met this man who had hired me and told him the job was done. I wanted the rest of the money. He said I'd have to wait. The problem with that confession is that there were six children killed in the house and not four. Mm-hmm. Yep. And to me, I don't know. And, and that is investigator said the same thing. And he said, oh, yeah, I killed the family, but I didn't kill the girls. So exactly. So right away, that confession just kind of goes right out the window. Yeah, I don't buy it. I don't yeah, buy it. Right out the window. What I am more interested in is the idea. So basically, you've got three camps of belief as far as Velisca goes. Um, you've got people that think it was Reverend George Kelly, who basically mm-hmm. was like sexually obsessed with Lena Stillinger, um, knew she was going to the Moore house that night for whatever reason, targeted her initially and then went crazy and committed the rest of the crime. And that's one school of thought. The second school of thought is um, F.F. Jones mm-hmm. hiring somebody uh, because of this vendetta as far as um, Josiah Moore having an alleged relationship with his daughter-in-law, Donia. So that's one option. The other option is either one of these known serial killers at the time, Blackie Mansfield or Henry Lee Moore. The other option that I also think is compelling is that given the connections to the railroad, that anyone wanting to could easily pop in and pop out of a town like Villisca, right? Yeah. I, my sense, you tell me what you think, um, but my sense is that these crimes were not committed by somebody known to the family. I don't believe that to be the case. I, I, I tend to agree with you. Yeah. My thing is, like, I think I would be more apt to believe that if – I think it would be easier for me to believe if the Cylinder Girls weren't there. To me, the complete, like the, – the Cylinder Girls is what throws the wrench in for me. Yeah. I think if there was a, a vendetta against the Moore family specifically, I don't think that – ff jones or somebody hired by ff jones would go into the house um and kill the extra two young girls correct because it would have been if it was a targeted vendetta you wouldn't have brought in the other girls like you wouldn't have killed them you probably would have waited until it was just the family it was just a random coincidence that those girls were there that night yeah exactly and i think that if it was uh, a hit, a paid hit that mm-hmm. again, like your target is the man and his family. It does not mm-hmm. include these two young girls. So, you know, for many reasons, first, that from what I understand about uh, hitmen, that they like to do what they're paid for and not more than that because that implicates them in further cases. I'm not saying that these people would have been that sophisticated, but it is a compelling idea to me. Even in that day. If a hitman was hired to say, I want you to kill this family, there's so-and-so number of people there. If there were extra kids, I think they would have seen that and probably would have backed off because they don't want to risk, like, okay, I'm bringing a whole other family into this and they could start issues, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, too. I also think that um, the fact that Lena was found in that sexualized pose, to me makes it seem like it was more than just a hit right if it was if it was a hit and even if the stillinger girls were victims of that 
that the chaos of the whole thing. Yeah, that that gets me to it's so much overkill for a hit. Like the extent of damage to those bodies Mm -hmm. is way more than a hit. I think so too. I think so too. What I'm more apt to believe is uh, a stranger. A stranger who's a serial killer with a strong sense of rage. Um, Somebody that entered the home and began a reign of terror and didn't stop. I think that the overkill on Josiah Mormon particularly could simply be due to the fact that he was the only man in the yeah, home. Yeah. And that you'd need to be like extra sure. Mm-hmm. You know? And the children were so small that it just wouldn't have taken that much, right? Yeah. Yeah. Cause Josiah probably, even though there's you can't see the evidence of it, he most likely did fight back. That's the other huge question mark is like, okay, like these investigators at the time were like, everybody stayed asleep and no, there was no evidence that anybody woke up. And I guess like my, my knee jerk reaction to that is like these murders for as brutal, brutal as they were and as gruesome as they were, there'd have been so much blood on that scene. How could you Mm -hmm. tell what was a defensive wound and what wasn't? How could you tell necessarily, um, even though everybody was found in their beds, how could you tell that they didn't collapse there kind of at the end of an altercation, right? Like, yeah, it's really hard to prove that somebody was asleep when they were killed unless they were like shot in their sleep or something like that, where it's very obvious exactly how much exactly right? Especially Josiah, like there was so much damage to that body that how could you even tell? No. And if Lena did wake up when somebody came in or somewhere in the course of the assault, I have a very hard time believing that she didn't make noise Mm -hmm. that would have woken up other people. And again, considering the size of the home too, like this was a very small house, right? Mm -hmm. Like I would be hard pressed to, to be convinced that somebody could be killed. And I'm sitting upstairs in a house of the exact same layout. When my husband was tending to the dog, I could hear everything that he was doing downstairs and he was just playing with the dog, right? He was Mm -hmm. not bludgeoning somebody to death. So, I just am very skeptical that nobody would have heard it. I'm very skeptical. I think hearing it but not having enough time to do anything about it or hearing it and being trapped is plausible. I think hearing it and being frozen with fear is plausible. Yes. Um, We do see children really freeze in these situations, right? Especially. Oh, God, yes. Oh, God, So, there's no expectation that children, like fight back you know mm-hmm. or right or go after somebody or what have you um they freeze so mm-hmm. the children being asleep or being like presumed to be asleep that doesn't quite um make me raise my eyebrows as much as the adults yeah 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 whether or not i think it was either of these like named potential serial killers i'm not sure but i do think that Whoever it was, I think the rage took over. Yeah. I mean, you see a pretty damn strong pattern mm-hmm. with those two serial killers that you named. Yeah, you do. You do. I think that Henry Moore is more compelling to me than Blackie Mansfield. So uh, Blackie Mansfield was kind of... Um, he was not the most sophisticated gentleman, right? Like, mm-hmm. he was on drugs. He was... 
not known to be particularly intelligent, not known to be like a, an operator, really. He was a bad dude that did bad stuff, but not the most sophisticated person in the world. Henry Moore has this kind of like systematic pattern of his travels that makes mm-hmm. him seem a lot more compelling to me. Um, the way that he kind of saliently moved um, along the rail lines was at some points employed by the rail lines. To me, it seems much more realistic to think of somebody like him being the person to to commit crimes like this, given yeah. how many similar crimes he was linked to, and also just given like the sophistication by which he traveled, that he could slip into Villisca, commit a murder mm-hmm. like this, and slip back out of town unnoticed. It's something that he did before. Oh, yeah. It would have been easy to do, honestly. Yeah. I also wonder, just with the evidence of, like, the bacon, the plate of food, and the cigarette in the attic, if he snuck into the house while they were gone. Mm-hmm. Like, that's my thought on it. Yeah. Because if the cigarette was in the attic, I don't feel like he would have gone up into the attic afterward. Right. No. I don't think he so either. Pr- he probably was sitting waiting there. And that's probably why the food was out in weird places. I think so, too. The only thing that kind of makes me wonder about that is, like, and I don't know much about, like, early 20th century church services, but it's interesting to me that there was, like, a night service for children. Like, that's a very convenient time for somebody to post up in your house to, like, lay in wait. I know that, and this is, like, my my memories in Toledo, Evening services wouldn't be weird. Yeah. What day of the week was it? Oh, it was a Sunday night, actually. How late did they get home, did you say? About 10 o'clock. The service ended at 9.30, so if we assume they had a 15 to 20 to a half an hour minute walk. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think evening masses are that weird, because depending on, like, how long it would have been, it could have started at 6 or 7. And if it was, like, a kid's thing, I don't think that that's that weird. Okay. Yeah. I would trust your interpretation on that. I don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> trust you better. But it could, if it was like a kids like event thing, say it started at like six and went from six to eight, and then they kind of dawdled around for a little bit, which is very likely the case. Yeah. 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 The service ended at eight thirty. We know that. Um, yeah, yeah. That that makes sense to me. Yeah. That's not weird. I mean, it seems convenient, but it, it is convenient. But I guess, yeah. I mean, if. If evening services were happening with any, like some degree of regularity in general and that people knew that, then yeah, mm-hmm. I could see that. I could see that. So yeah, those are the theories surrounding Velisca. I want to talk, I want to wrap up a little bit with just kind of like the legacy of these axe murders. So, you know, Velisca was a bustling little town and then this happened and then Velisca kind of lost its footing in a lot of ways and the progress it was making kind of halted uh, in the wake of these murders and it became just kind of known as only the place of these axe murders known for nothing nothing else really you know it did have some degree of significance in those early land wars as far as the armory is concerned uh, there were also people stationed there during world wars one and two but that wouldn't make it like a particularly known like point of interest for people outside of people with an interest in that, right? So the Velisca house itself has changed hands a few times since 1912. The first couple of people that owned it afterward basically like 
redid the entire house, I think with an attempt to use it more as a piece of real estate. Yeah. That didn't work. Because it's still the Valeska Axe murder house. Yeah. So the most recent owners basically took on the task of entirely historically restoring it, using old images and just historical data and information to, to recreate how the house would have looked uh, in 1912. What they have also done uh, is use the house to open a museum. So the house is now a museum, mostly about the axe murders. For the low, low price of about $500 a night, you can also stay at the Velisca house. It's a very popular site for ghost hunters uh, and paranormal investigators of all kinds. And so... That too, like I, I found a lot of like accounts from um, like ghost hunters and investigators that would go to Villisca and just have this sense of like unease mm-hmm. in just being in town because people would like roll their eyes about it, right? Like, ugh, another one of you people. And there was also uh, relatively recently a group of uh, producers and actors that put together a play kind of reenacting the Villisca axe murders and the kind of the after effects that came into town to, to do that production and also to film a documentary about it. And that documentary film was called Slay Utterly, which is really an excellent title. Um, mm. And that the, the crew from that also talked about just feeling like not necessarily like unwelcomed in an overt way, but just kind of like this kind of exasperated, like, ugh, yeah. really? And I feel like that's how I would feel too. Like, Really? Yeah, I can't blame them, yeah. honestly. I feel like if you're if you're that town, you want to be able to move on. Yeah. You know? Uh, and they haven't really... It it hasn't really happened as such. Like, the Velisca house is definitely, like, one of the reasons to go to Velisca, right? There's not a whole lot else going on. Not a lot of industry, not a lot of interest. I mean, it was a small town at the time, yeah. It was, although it was on a trajectory to be, I think, exactly. less of yeah. a small town. I think, historically speaking, like, I think it probably could have been, had it been able to stay on the same trajectory, it could have been a town with the same degree of prominence as, like, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, or these other kind of, like, mm-hmm. mid-sized, you know, <laughs> cities, but it didn't get to. It just kind of got, like, stopped in its tracks. Um, and in many ways... I don't know, that just kind of makes me wonder about, like, the place of this kind of stuff as far as, like, cultural and historical context. Like, um, you want these cases to be remembered and to be thought about. Um, Do you want them to be monetized in this way or um, to become the centerpiece of, like, an entire town? I think those are kind of important, interesting questions. Mm -hmm. And that's Velisca. Yay! Still unsolved. Still unsolved. Yes. I think what makes these things so spooky is when they are still unsolved. Yeah. Even like St. Alban, like still unsolved. And that's why it stays so spooky. Yeah, it totally does. And, you know, like the extremity of it, like when we think Mm -hmm. about bludgeonings like that, like that's just stuff that you don't really hear much. Yeah. You know? Well, I was thinking about like um, the Clutter family murders. Mm -hmm. Kind of, again, similar setup of, you know, a mass family murder. But that got solved relatively quickly. So it doesn't have that spooky factor to it. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is spooky because it's like, most people believe it to be a stranger. 
mm-hmm. not just to the family, but also to the town, whether it was a hired yeah. stranger or somebody passing through. So you get that sense of like, um, it was a quiet, happy, prosperous town until, right? And that's mm-hmm. what makes it so scary. Like you could come exactly. home and there's this dude in your attic mm-hmm. and that's the end of that's it. That's fucking terrifying. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely horrifying. And, you know, I think when you do like live in a place like that, that has this mm-hmm. kind of like idyllic sense to it. I find myself personally being a little bit seduced by the, like, we don't lock our doors at night kind of mentality, right? Because it does feel comforting, and then you get used to that comfort, and then the comfort gets upended. Mm-hmm. You know? I still lock my doors, but I did not grow up in a town like this either. I just happened upon it in my 30s. <laughs> <laughs> so, a little bit different, but. I've always locked my doors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just don't feel right, especially, like, at night, like, at the end of the day. I just get weird feelings about doors opening, Mm -hmm. like, I won't lock it, so I won't close it all the way, and then it'll crack open, and then there'll be a coyote in my living room. Or a ghost. Or an axe murder. Uh, Or all of the above. Yeah, or a coyote. Ghost murderer. (laughs) Right? Definitely. Yes. So tell us about next week. All right. Well, we are staying in Iowa. We're actually going just about like an hour and a half north. Really? Pretty sure it's north. Okay. Yeah. To Erling. Erling. Erling, Iowa, where we will be talking about the Erling exorcism. Interesting. We are doing the exorcism of Anna Eklund. And I'm very excited for this. Oh, man. We've never done an exorcism case before, but I am so intrigued and so ready for this. I'm so ready for I love exorcism cases. I love exorcism movies. (laughs) I love all of them. And here's, nobody dies. Just spoilers. Nobody's going to die. Huh. So it is just extra spooky and maybe a little debunky. Mm. Maybe a little, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, anyway, bring all your exorcism knowledge because you have secret family exorcist secrets. I do, I do, I do. <laughs> oh, now I'm extra interested and curious. This is going to be very, very interesting. Did you Google it? I no. Should I? Do you want me to Google it? No. Okay. No, no I won't then. I no. won't. I won't. Okay. No. All right, friends. <laughs> so. <laughs> Please. So come back for our exorcism. Yes, come back our for our exorcism. Exorcism. <laughs> our very first exorcism. Our very first exorcism. Baby's first exorcism. So Baby's first exorcism. Uh, in the meantime, please connect with us on the socials. Um, I feel like today's episode is kind of a change of tone for us lately. We've been really hitting um, some pretty somber stuff. And yeah. this kind of has a different take to it. So, um, you know, I hope that people enjoyed the, not a breather necessarily, but. I mean, Maybe it's something still a mass family murder. Yeah, I was also thinking about like, ah, oh, we should be signing up. I just want to leave with this tidbit: like, when, where is the line between like spooky old timey and like I don't know more contemporary consciousness? And I was thinking about that, and I kind of wondered if like if it is that line drawn when everybody involved would be like naturally deceased by X amount of time. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, 
So like, there's no way that anybody involved in Velisca could still be alive right now. Right. Mm-hmm. Maybe the littlest boy could be 115 years old if he was a record breaker or whatever, but um, it's not likely. So uh, I wonder if that was kind of like the, the cutoff point. Like if everybody involved would most likely be dead, is that kind of when our sense of separation happens? Because I think you can't argue that there is a sense of separation, right? Oh, 100%, yeah. And I kind of wondered, like, how do we draw that distinction? And and where do we, like, implicitly put that line? Like, I don't think we could say necessarily explicitly where we put it. but And then, mm-hmm. like, it makes you wonder, like, how would different people draw that line, right? Like, I'm 34. I wasn't alive in the 70s but the seventies feel more immediate to me than they would for somebody who was born in 2003. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. cause I can, there definitely is a change mm-hmm. that I think most of us feel that we can talk about these old timey cases. We can talk about them with less. It feels like less baggage for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, just I don't know. Why, you know, I don't know. Yeah, food for thought, people. Think about that. That's your uh, exit right. ticket for the day. Just to think about that. All if right. I'm a teacher. I'll think about it. Silly, silly teachers make giving us critical thinking I know. stuff. I and my kids say the same thing. One of them said today, Miss, this makes my brain hurt. I was like, good. Uh, use your brain cells. Work them out, baby. My kids say that to me every day that I test them, but I don't doubt it. Anyway, uh, connect with us on the socials. We're at Midwretched. We'd love to hear from people. So, um, yeah, we're there and we're listening. So listener requests, feedback, uh, kind words of encouragement. We love it all. Give us a good, happy review. Give us a five-star review. Yes, we love them. Drop those stars, friends. We like them. Makes us happy. <laughs> all right. Come back next week. Yes. And tell your friends. And tell your friends. All right, guys. Uh, Please remember to be nice. And eat cheese. And we love We love you you so much. Yes, and happy spooky season. Happy spooky season. Bye, friends. need to let it go just let me live i'm letting you live i just get really curious about stupid things it has nothing to do with you i promise i'm sorry i love you